trilogy, all three Godfather movies, all eight hours and 57 uh, minutes of Vito Corleone. And we did it. We took breaks, of course, to warm up food in the microwave, to use the restroom. Uh, We had to rewind one of them. Remember when we used to rewind movies? We'd rewind one of them because I fell asleep for the second half. I had to watch it. At the end of the day, I was exhausted. And that's my point. Have you ever had a day where you've done nothing, and when the day was finished, you were exhausted? Have you ever gone on vacation, and you come back from vacation, and you need a vacation because you're exhausted? Have you ever had a holiday, maybe the 4th of July, perhaps, and you get back to work on Monday, and you feel like you need a holiday? Have you ever ever had a night of sleep and you wake up in the morning and you are exhausted? You know, one thing that life has taught us is that ceasing from labor alone gives us absolutely no rest in and of itself. Like, we can actually cease from labor and physically rest and find no rest. This is why an old woman who was near death once told me, Honey, I'm tired, and I'm ready to go home. What does she know about home that we often forget? Well, she knows what Hebrews 4 says. Hebrews 4 says that there is a rest that remains for the people of God. She knows that in this same sin-tainted world that there is no rest. As we endlessly labor, as we endlessly worry about the things that the sin-tainted world has plastered all over us, And today we come to this fourth commandment, which is a commandment to rest. What does it mean? What does it mean to rest? Well, this morning what I want you to know is this. I want you to know that Christ has a rest for you. That outside of Christ, while your body may rest, outside of Christ you will find no real rest ever. And maybe that's why you're here today, because you haven't found the rest, and once again, you're coming hoping to find some rest. Rest for the weary soul. And what I want you to know today is that this rest is available. So in order to understand it, in order to find it, we're going to have to dig deep in this commandment, all right? We've got to go on a dig this morning. We've got to do some mining And as we dig into this fourth commandment, I hope that we'll find out where it's rooted, how it's renewed, how it's reinstituted, and what it means for us. Are you ready? Let's get into it. Let's start digging. By the way, we are going to dig, meaning we're going to be in a lot of Bible passages this morning. So if you are not familiar with the Bible, you can just feel free to listen. 
Um, if you're pretty familiar with the Bible and you can quick, quickly flip through it, feel free to follow along. But let's start right here in Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. We see this word, remember. Everybody say remember. Remember, remember what? The Sabbath day. So this is a command to remember. Deuteronomy uses the word observe, so it's, an, it's, a, it's some kind of remembrance observation, ceremony. There's, remember the Sabbath day. Now, what are they to remember? Well, I, I might have just heard it. Um, he, he, he actually tells us right here. He says, in six days, God did what? God cre- worked, created, and on the seventh day, he rested. So he's going back to Genesis with this fourth commandment. He's rooting this fourth commandment in creation. So going back to Genesis, what we find is that God hung a, a, a sun and a moon, all right, that would give us these, these periods, these, these uh, uh, what, would, what would become known as days, these markers of time, if you would. And over, uh, th- or throughout six of these intervals of time, which became known as days, God created and worked, and on the seventh interval, God rested. He said, it is good. God observed all that he saw, and he entered into his rest of enjoying his work, of enjoying what he has done, of enjoying his creation. So here we see that Sabbath, then, this pattern of one in seven, six days of work, one day of rest, is rooted in creation. Now, humans, according to Hebrews 4, were told, or we were supposed to live in God's rest. We were supposed to find our hope, our pattern, our work, our physical, we were supposed to find everything about our life in God, resting in God. But as the story goes on in Genesis, what we find and what we remember is that very quickly humanity rebelled against God. And as a result, humans began to frantically work for themselves. They began to frantically cover up and frantically uh, try to find and work for their own security and their own identity. And now in Uh, On Mount Sinai, in the wilderness, God is giving them the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, and he gives them this fourth word of the Decalogue, and that is to remember the Sabbath, this one in seven, this six days of work and one day of rest. Now, what we see here in the text is that the rest was to be complete for Israel. So we see that the people were supposed to rest from all of their work, their, their animals were supposed to rest. Their servants were supposed to rest, meaning you couldn't command your servant to do something for you. And even the strangers, the foreigners that are in their land were to take this time of rest. It was complete, and it was absolutely countercultural in an ancient world that had no days off. You know, the two-day work week is relatively new. I'm sorry, the two-day work week. That's, that's relatively new to a lot of, uh, I'm not going to say a people group, or I'll, I'll, I'll offend somebody in the room. The two-day weekend, rather, is relatively new to humanity. 
And so this is a world, uh, seven days of work, and here is this people group in this agricultural society where you really got to keep, keep, keep your hand on the plow, and they're taking this seventh interval of, uh, of, of time, this day, to rest. Absolutely countercultural. It would be a sign to the world that God is the sustainer, not us. It would be a sign to the world that God creates, not us. And it was for more than mere practical benefits. While there were some practical benefits of rest, there were more than practical benefits. It would serve as a reminder for the people of who God is. Now, rooted in creation does not mean that we then are the creators, but it means that this Sabbath day was a day to enjoy all of God's work. It was a day to enjoy all of God's creation. Now, going on, Deuteronomy chapter 5, if you want to turn there, we see another version of the Ten Commandments. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, what we see is that Sabbath is also rooted not only in creation, but Sabbath is rooted in redemption. Verse 12, we see here, observe the Sabbath day. Skip down to verse 15. Here's where he roots it. He says, remember that you were slaves, and I brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, keep the Sabbath day. So here in Deuteronomy 5, God is rooting this command in the fact that they've been delivered. The fact that they were slaves in Egypt. The fact that they passively came out of Egypt, not according to their own work, their own labor, their own ability, but just simply because of the grace of God. Now, slavery in Egypt, always in the Bible, serves as a type of the greater slavery. So when we see slavery in Egypt, we know what that means. That's referring to the slavery that we all find ourselves in. The slavery to sin and the slavery to death. Rooted in redemption, Sabbath would be a declaration saying my identity is not found in saving myself. Sabbath would be a declaration saying my identity is not found in getting married. My identity is not found in getting a job promotion. My identity is not found in moving to a better neighborhood. My identity is not found in anything that I do for myself. Sabbath is a declaration saying I did absolutely nothing to save myself from Egypt, but God delivered me. God delivered me. God delivered you from your sexual addiction. God delivered you from your racism. God delivered you from your marriage falling apart. God delivered you from your guilt. God delivered you from your self-hate. And as a delivered people, then, being a Sabbath people, we are to declare to one another how we've been delivered. Now, turn to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3. How would this day be celebrated? A day of creation and redemption. Would it be just simply sitting in your house on your couch, flipping through the channels? Well, you see here in Leviticus 23, 3 is something we often miss. There are six days, he says, when you must work. But the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest. Here, now he defines the rest. It's a day of sacred assembly. We see it's a coming together. So Sabbath, then, would not be an individualistic endeavor but rather Sabbath bringing together creation and redemption would be this public ceremony of the people of God coming together as created beings, 
as redeemed beings. And at the center of this ceremony in Israel, when the sacrifice would be brought to the altar, so this would be the very high point of their sacred assembly, Psalm 104 would be sung, which is what Renina so beautifully read this morning. Now let me just quote to you a few lines from Psalm 104, which they would have sung during this moment. You make springs give drink for the beasts of the field. You give plants for man to cultivate. When you send forth your spirit, humans are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Don't you see these two themes, creation and redemption? This celebration, this assembly saying this is who God is. And we are his beloved people. God's work in this world. Now a question we have to ask at this point is, what happened to it? If Sabbath was so great, what happened to it? It was a big deal. God took it very seriously. There was a, a, a punishment, there was a capital punishment would be required for breaking the Sabbath. Strict laws around work. It was observed on Saturdays, not Sundays. What happened to it? Well, friends, there was nothing wrong with the fourth commandment. But the application of the fourth commandment would be renewed in Christ. So let's go ahead and move forward in our story, continue digging, and let's turn to Luke chapter 13. Here we see Luke chapter 13, Jesus observing the Sabbath day. And there in verse 13, we find that there's a woman who's been disabled. She's bent over. Jesus sees this woman who's bent over. She comes to him, and Jesus places his hand on this woman, and she stands up. He heals her. Now, by this time in our story, the, uh, the people of Israel had created hundreds and hundreds of man-made laws and rules around Sabbath observance. For example, a tailor was advised to put the needle down 30 minutes prior to sunset on Friday. So that way he wouldn't be holding the needle on Sabbath and therefore break the fourth commandment. Or a man would be uh, would, would not be allowed to carry a staff across the field, a field on the Sabbath, for fear that he might drop the staff, and then it would bury a, uh, into the ground and create a furrow in the ground, and the man would, would then be plowing the field, therefore guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And on the question of whether or not it was okay to give to a beggar, the answer was, as long as the beggar takes the money from your hand, and you don't do the work of putting the money into his hand, it's okay. So you can only imagine now 
as Jesus heals this woman, and a woman who's been disabled, bent over, who knows what her back looked like, and all of a sudden, with the touch of the healing hand, she stands up in strength, completely renewed. We can only imagine that the Pharisees had a problem with it. Now here, what we find is that Jesus is not abolishing the Sabbath. But what we find is that as he did with all of God's commandments, Jesus is explaining the heart of the commandment. And he's now beginning to show what it is that God really requires and commands of us. So what's he saying here in this text? First, he's saying that Sabbath is about freedom in an enslaved world. In verse 16, as the Pharisees look at Jesus and scowl at him, and how can you do such a work on the Sabbath and break the Sabbath, Jesus looks at them in verse 16, he says, this is a daughter of Abraham. She's one of God's. Should she not be, be, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? She is enslaved to this position of her body. Should she not be on the Sabbath day freed from this? Imagine that you had thousands of dollars of student loans. For some of you, that's not hard to imagine. Now imagine if Sally Mae or whoever the culprit is came along and they said, hey, we have paid off your loans for you. Just wanted you to know that. <laughs> Montrell's crying down in the second row. You know what it's like to be under bondage. You know what it would feel like if you were released from this bondage. In an incredible act of mercy, Christ on the Sabbath releases from bondage and brings healing. Now the physical healing in the New Testament is a mere token of the greater healing that God brings through Christ, and that is the spiritual healing. The Sabbath is a day to recognize and remember and rejoice in the healing and the recreation and the redemption that Christ is bringing into our lives. What are we doing today? We're gathering together this sacred assembly, which Hebrews 10 says, don't miss. We're gathering together for, to, to observe a remembrance of healing. The fact that Christ has healed us. He has healed your wounds. Physical healing as a mere side, the greater healing is the healing that he brings where we are broken by sin, by the consequences of sin. God this morning can heal your marriage. God can heal the sting of rejection. God can heal racism. God can heal addiction to work. God can heal the anger and the bitterness that you continue to carry. On August 22nd, when we have a block party for the community, we're not just having a block party. We are proclaiming to the community that there's a greater healing that is to be had, and that is the healing that we find in Jesus Christ. Sabbath is about freedom in an enslaved world. We also see this from Jesus' ministry. Sabbath is about flourishing in a frazzled world. Turn back to Mark, the book of Mark chapter 2. 
Sabbath is about flourishing in a frazzled world. Again, Jesus is criticized in Mark 2. His disciples are, are picking grain and they're eating, and this evidently is against these man-made rules that they had set up. And they confront Jesus on it. Jesus uses a couple powerful illustrations to show that what they're doing is actually within God's, uh, God's, God's law. And then Jesus says something here that's actually absolutely remarkable. He says, he says that the Sabbath is made for man. Man is not made for the Sabbath. What is he saying there? He's saying that Sabbath is a day of pure grace for humanity. It is a gift from God to you. Now, because of these legalistic rules that the Pharisees had bound the day with, you would have never known that. You would have thought that the day was a day for gloom and boredom and anything else you don't like. But Jesus shows us a couple things. He shows us that the day is a day of joy and not gloom. Matthew Henry simply said it this way. He said, Sabbath is not a begrudgery or an imposition. Jesus showed us that the day is a day of feasting and not fasting. We are not to embrace a hollow form of life on, on Sabbath, but just the opposite. It's a day to enjoy life. It's a day to enjoy a meal with fellow believers. It's a day to enjoy good wine, to take a walk in God's creation. Jesus shows us that Sabbath is a day of action, not being idle. So as Jesus here renews the Sabbath, what he's doing is he's showing that actually there is labor that's good. There's actually good ways to work. There's good things to do, the, and what's good is to serve God, to use your gifts, to use your resources, to use your time and your talents to do things that add to life. Anything that adds to life, then, is good for Sabbath. Shows us, then, that ceasing from work, in and of itself, has absolutely no value. To just simply stop working and sit at home and be idle has absolutely no value. Richard Baxter put it this way. He said, every, uh, uh, being idle is a sin every day of the week. And it's especially a sin on the Sabbath. Now, ceasing from work, listen to this, it only has value insofar that it allows you to do what you should do. To enjoy life. To gather with God's people. To serve one another. To enjoy God's creation. And to be reminded that God is working, not you. And fourthly, what we see from Jesus teaching is that Sabbath is a day of worship and not withdrawal. It's a day to publicly come together and to celebrate all that God is and all that God is doing. Some years ago, I was told uh, when I was a youth pastor at a, at a former church, I was, I was advised to take a Sabbath. And, uh, and I was like, what do you mean by that? He said, just choose a day. Take a Sabbath. So what do I do on it? Just 
Nothing. I like that idea. So I worked on Sundays as a pastor, and I thought, okay, Thursdays are going to be my Sabbath. So for a few years, I started calling my Thursday my Sabbath. And then I began to realize the Bible knows nothing of this. <laughs> this, this sort of American personalized Sabbath. For instance, someone might say, well, I Sabbath every night in the bathtub. That's my Sabbath. Or I Sabbath on Monday mornings, or whatever. The Sabbath isn't a personalized, individualistic time of doing nothing. But Sabbath is a time to worship. It's a time to recognize who God is. It's a time to stop of all, the, of the, all of the things that we're doing and, to, and to, just, to just be with the Lord. Thirdly, we see that Sabbath is all about Jesus. It's all about him. So Jesus goes on in Mark 2, and he actually says, he makes this huge claim, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I just had the opportunity yesterday to talk with a Jewish friend of mine, and he asked me what I was preaching on, so I told him, and I, I, gave, I quoted, I said, Jesus actually said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and he was like, whoa. He was like, that's a big claim. I was like, I know, isn't it? That's why I love this guy. Some, some time ago, I remember overhearing a conversation. A, a woman had a, her birthday coming up. And she said, this is my day. I've taken work off already. I've, I, my friends are coming over. We're having a party, and we're doing whatever I feel like doing because that's my day. Why does this woman feel like her birthday is her day? Oh, well, it's because she was born on it. And so in some way, it represents her life. But really, it's not her day at all, is it? Like, she doesn't own May 22nd or whatever that day was. That's not her day. But she, she still feels that way, right? Now, when Jesus says, this is my day, when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, what he is not saying is, I feel like this is my day. In contrast, Jesus doesn't feel like the Sabbath is, is his day. He doesn't just simply uh, 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 want people to sort of celebrate it with him as if it's his birthday. But no, Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus created it, claimed it, marked it, owns it. He has the power to define it, and in his coming, he actually showed it. The Sabbath is his. Jesus is the foreshadowed rest. The Sabbath is his day. And as the earliest Christians called it, they called it the Lord's Day. A renewed application of the fourth commandment. Quoting Jesus, I am the Lord of this day. Now, as the story continues through the Bible, we come to the darkest moment in all of history, and that is a Saturday, when Jesus is lying in the grave dead, cold. Recreation happens the next morning. The next morning, that first day of the week, they come to the tomb, and what do they find? The tomb is empty. 
The next morning, the first day of the week, recreation began and time started all over again. Sabbath secures its meaning in Resurrection Sunday. His rest and work, or I'm sorry, his work was done and Jesus entered into his rest and the new world had begun. Jesus, on that day, the first day of the week, he appeared that morning to his followers. That afternoon, Jesus appeared again to his followers. That evening, he appeared once again to his followers who were gathered in a room together. A week later, the, final, the, 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 the next uh, Sunday, Jesus appeared once again to his followers. The church no longer gathered for worship on Saturday. There's no evidence that there was any sense of Saturday worship for Christians. Something had changed. As a matter of fact, the evidence that we see is that Paul, in Romans 14, actually gets on to those who would be forcing anyone to observe the old Jewish ceremonies. Stop judging each other, he says. In Colossians 2, Paul soothes Gentiles who have been made to feel guilty for not following Jewish customs and meeting on Saturday. Paul says there's no day that's better than another. In contrast to meeting on Saturday, the Christians were meeting together on Sundays. They were meeting on the first day of the week. We see this in Acts Chapter 20, they're breaking bread together, meaning they're having the Lord's Supper together on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, they're uh, told to take an, a collection for the poor together when they, uh, assuming they're coming together on the first day of the week. And by the time we get to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, this day, this first day of the week, has received a new name. And it's called the Lord's Day a one-in-seven pattern that has been glorified and renewed. In the Old Covenant, you would rest after your work is done, but in the New Covenant, we rest out of the rest of Christ. We work, rather, out of our rest on the first day of the week. Instead of the last day of the week, it is a first fruits to God. So what does this mean for us? For us, this means that the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, is reinstituted as a day of receiving recreation and redemption. Why is it that it, Christians in years past have believed that if I can just survive through this week and make it to the Lord's Day, then everything will be okay? Why is it that a family would rush home from being out of town on a Saturday so that they can gather with their family, their church family, the next day? Is it because they're legalistic? No, it's because they understand something beautiful about this day. Let me just give you a, a, somewhat of a handle here to grab onto. I'm going to give you four R's to think through. Refrain, reoriented, reminded, and recipients. Refrain. 
While society is frantically running from football games to work to picnics to Facebook, trying to find their identity in everything that they can put their hands on and everything that they can do, Christians are marked by not just simply refraining from labor, but being reminded that I have done nothing with my own hands to earn my salvation. I have done absolutely no work to earn God's favor for me. And so therefore, the unnecessary work of gathering, uh, uh, earning an extra dollar or attending a concert just doesn't make any sense for us. Because there would be nothing better than this glimpse of heaven when we can come together, be reminded of recreation, and be reminded of redemption, and be reminded of the fact that we have done nothing. We then reorient ourselves. We need this because we get so confused in life. And we must be reoriented to what is true. Because the day is a day of sheer grace, we, it, it, it then reorients our entire life. We gain a glimpse into reality, into who Christ is in this assembly as the word is preached. We are then reminded, because we are a forgetful people, aren't we? We forget throughout the week that we are saved by grace and not by works. We are always defaulting to this, this position of, of our flesh which, set, which says that I must do something to earn God's favor. And we must be reminded of the fact that we don't. We must be reminded of the fact that Christ's work for you is enough. In a frantic world, we are reminded that we have done nothing to earn God's favor. Christ has done everything. And therefore, this is what, this is what makes the day. We are, we are merely recipients of God's grace. We stand together with our palms open, saying, God, we are receiving this morning. We are receiving your grace. We partake in the means of grace. We come together to be encouraged with one another. We spend times with each other so that we might be recipients of God's favor, so that we might be reminded of the fact that we are recipients of God's favor, even on these crazy days when we are working. And we come to a meeting, anticipating a meeting with Jesus. See, Christ rose on the first day, and he appeared to those who were meeting. The next week, he appeared to those who were meeting, huddled in a room together. And for 2,000 years, Sunday after Sunday, year after year, Christians all across the world have woken up on Sunday mornings on the Lord's Day, and they have gathered together in meeting houses, and living rooms, and under shade trees, and in cathedrals, and in Elks Lodges anticipating a meeting with Jesus. And friends, Jesus has come to serve you today. We don't just come together to have corporate devotions. We don't just simply come together just because we like each other. We do, well, we do like each other. But we come anticipating a meeting with Jesus. And we have come and we have discovered that Jesus has come to us today through the singing of his praises, through the confession of sin, through 
being reminded and assured that he has forgiven us through the, the Lord's Supper, being reminded of his death and resurrection through the preached word, Jesus has come to meet with you today. And in this meeting, you find what you find every day, and that is rest for your weary soul. Jesus doesn't require a thing. He requires you to say, I have nothing. He requires you to look at him and realize that he has done everything. Friends, we come together to be reminded of the rest that we have in Christ. And also reminded that one day, this rest that we have in Christ will be fully realized. Hebrews 4, there's a rest that remains. It will be fully realized when Christ, in his physical form, comes back to earth and we see the risen Christ face to face. We don't see him through physical eyes or through spiritual eyes of faith, but rather we see him with our physical eyes. And on that day and for all of eternity, we rest in his favor. We have Christ. That's what this day is about. That's what this commandment is about. It's just about Christ. It's about the message of Christ. It's about the work of Christ. It's not about us. It's not about our work. It's about him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together and be reminded of the fact that Jesus is good, that Jesus' work is sufficient for us, that we can rest in his work. And God, I pray for the weary soul this morning, that as they have heard this message, that they will find rest in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.